Well, good morning, Trailhead, and uh, welcome. Really glad you guys are here this morning. My name is Aaron, and uh, excited to look into the scriptures with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, if this is your first Sunday here at Trailhead, we're so glad you're here. Welcome, and uh, we hope that you find this to be helpful and beneficial in your life. If you would grab your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, if you look under the seat in front of you, you should find a hardback one. You can grab that. Uh, Acts chapter 6 in that Bible is on page 914. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one with you. Let that be our gift to you. We would like for you to have a Bible to read it for yourself. Don't take my word for anything on this. Um, Test it and see what it actually says in there. Um, We're in the book of Acts, like I said, and today we're going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to read that, and then we'll get into the message. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Um, Before we start this morning, I just want to open us in a word of prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. Um, God, we pray that you'll be with us this morning as we look into Scripture, as we hear what you have to say for us. Help us to hear things um, in a way that is true to you. Um, Let us hear your voice coming through. And when those things are difficult or hard for us to hear, help us to um, believe because you know what is true and what is right, and help us to believe you above our own hearts. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So, as we've been going through the book of Acts, let me kind of back up and and give you a picture of where we are. The, The book of Acts is the history of the early church. So, you start the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we call those the Gospels, and they're biographies of the life of Jesus Christ, and they tell us what Jesus did while he was here on earth, and about his death and his resurrection. And then at the end of of the Gospels, Jesus returns to heaven, and he leaves his followers with a mission. And he gives them a goal, and the mission that he gives them is to go out into the rest of the world and to spread the good news of who he is and of what he did and of what that means, and to share that with everyone throughout the world. And so the book of Acts picks up where Jesus left and it tells us the story of how his followers did that, how they started this mission and how they got things rolling and how the church, what we call the church today, grew and began from them going out on this mission and trying to share the gospel with the rest of the world. The word we we use when we say church Uh, is the translation of a Greek word in the Bible. The word is ekklesia, which means a gathering or an assembly. 
And what the church really was, was a group of people gathering together for this purpose, because Jesus had given them this mission to go out and to share the gospel. And as they did that, and what we've seen at the beginning through the first five chapters of the book of Acts is that they went out as a group and they started sharing the gospel and it just, it exploded and it just started to grow like crazy. And so it starts with this group of 12 people who had been following Jesus, his apostles. And by the time we get to the beginning of Acts chapter six, if we go back through the first five chapters at different points where it tells how many people were joining this group, how many people were believing the gospel and becoming members of this early church, we've got at least, at this point, at least 5,000 men. And the way that uh, ancient history was written, they usually counted just men. And we'll actually talk about that a little bit uh, in a minute today. But If we are to look at that and say that there were probably, I mean, in all likelihood, at least a one-to-one ratio of men to both women and children, and then we could guess there were at least 10,000, and then even at that, it's hard to look at some of the numbers and say, are they saying this is the total number, or is this just the number that joined on that day? And so it's possible that the number was way above 15,000 people at this point in time who had heard the message, the gospel, the truth about what Jesus Christ had done, and they had become a part of this group whose goal was to to go and to share that truth with other people. Now, in the context of what's going on, though, and there's a couple things we have to understand to understand what we're looking at here in chapter six, that this started and this really got going on the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish holiday, a Jewish celebration, and there were hundreds or thousands of people who had come to Jerusalem from other countries who were part of or came from other backgrounds, different cultures, spoke different languages. And on that day, the Holy Spirit filled the apostles with this supernatural ability and allowed them to speak in different languages so that all these people who spoke different languages, who came from different backgrounds and different cultures, they could understand what the apostles were saying. And they believed the gospel and they stayed in Jerusalem to be a part of this group that was growing to share the good news. Well, what that created in this early church, this big, massive group of people, was a, 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 and in a great way, a huge mix of cultures, a diversity of, of languages, of ethnicities, of backgrounds. So there's this, this multicultural group and it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. Now we look at what's going on early on in the book of Acts and we look at what the church is and we say this is the beginning of the church. And to look at that and it's this big, huge, dynamic, growing group, but it's, it's they're a huge group, but they're kind of living all in community together and, and they, they're existing solely for this purpose of, of worshiping God and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're all led, these thousands of people are all being led by these 12 guys. But it's okay because it's very simple and they have a very simple and specific goal and a specific purpose. But if we take that, this huge, dynamic, disorganized group, and we say that's the beginning of the church, and we compare that to what we look at or what we see when we, when we talk about church today, which is this very structured, very organized, very, in a lot of ways, institutionalized structure 
in society and in culture. It can be hard to kind of connect the dots between those two things. How did the church go from what we see at the beginning of the book of Acts and the first five chapters of this sort of big, organic, um, just dynamic group of people believing the gospel and going out and wanting, how did it go from that to this very structured, very organized and very powerful institution? The building blocks of that are here at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. Because what we start to see, and as we go through this, what we're going to see is that the church reached a point where it had to go from being this totally just big, huge group on mission, that they needed to be that, but be that in a more organized and structural way. That in order to continue the mission they'd been given, they had to create a sense of organization. The really ironic thing that I think is going to come through as we look at this today is that the reason that started to happen, the purpose behind everything that happens in Acts chapter 6, is like the opposite of what in many ways, sadly, the church as an institution has become. And when we hear people react against, or when you and I react against the church, and when we have this sort of visceral, ugly reaction to the idea of organized religion, that's an insult, right? Like nobody says organized religion in a positive way, right? When people talk about organized religion, it's usually to say that I hate organized religion, right? And so when we hear that term and we think about it in such a negative way, What I want us to see this morning is that it's actually what they're reacting against, what I'm reacting against, and you're reacting against when you hear that and think about that, that sort of institution is actually the exact opposite of what we see going on here. That the purpose and the reason behind the church organizing itself was not what that organization or structure throughout history has tended to do. And I'll just make sure that we we all see where that comes from or where we're going with this. So here's kind of the bottom line of all of this this morning. If you miss everything else or if I just kind of trail off or you trail off in your mind or whatever, here's what you need to hear, okay? The reason the church got organized, the reason the church created a leadership structure was to leverage that leadership and that organization to serve those who were in the greatest need, not to serve those who were in positions of power. And so what we see often, and and we'll come to this as we go through here, but what we see often is people in positions of power use those positions of power for their own benefit. And they leverage their their authority, their position, their title in order to do what's best for them. That's not what we see happening in this passage. So let's look through and see what happened. Like we said, um, when the church began, there there was this huge diversity of people, okay? And among that wide multicultural mix, there was a group of people who were referred to as Hellenists. Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. 
So these would have been Jewish people who came not from Jerusalem, but from outer parts of, of the country or, or other regions, but had come for Pentecost, believed the gospel, and stayed. And within that group, as we see in verse number one, it says, in these days when the disciples were increasing in numbers, so as this, this group is just growing and growing, a complaint by the Hellenists. So this is a group that's kind of in the minority of the church at the time, a complaint arose against the Hebrews. And so what you can start to see is this sort of, almost we could call it like a racial tension within the early church because there were two distinct groups. And one group is saying this group is, is harming us. Why? Because, because their widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. So like we said, there were all these people and a lot of them displaced from their original culture and their original home, and they're staying together, and they're living together, and they're working as a community, and so they're sharing all their resources. And we see earlier that it says that they all had everything in common. So they're sharing everything together. But in the process of that, there's a group that's starting to get neglected, that's being passed over, that people aren't noticing. Specifically, it's not just this minority group of the Hellenists, but it's within that minority. It's a minority of the minority. It's a group of the widows within that group. And widows in this culture, in this time, were like one of the least powerful people there were. They were one of the most voiceless segments of society because at this point in time, women did not have um, respect or honor or authority within the culture. And the only way a woman could even honestly survive was to be attached to a man through marriage or through her family. And so to be a widow meant to lose sort of that lifeline. And so a widow in this culture was somebody who had to rely completely and solely on charity, on the goodness or the kindness of others, or else you were completely at a loss. If you were lucky enough as a widow to have a large family otherwise that you could rely on, then that that would help. But if you're a widow who's moved from your home to a different place and you've been displaced from your family, from your country of origin, and now you're a part of a new group and they don't even speak the same language you do, you become sort of the smallest minority of this whole group and one of the least powerful and most voiceless parts of the group. And that's what started to happen. But other Hellenists started to speak up against it. And so this complaint, and the word complaint, um, I feel like at times sort of gets um, abused here. Not, I mean, it's the right word. There was a problem, but we shouldn't view this as like they were griping or whining or something like this. This is a legitimate problem, okay? Because they were all sharing their food together. If they're not getting their part of the daily distribution, they're not eating. That's a legitimate concern. Okay, And so this rises to the level where the the apostles hear about it. So these 12 guys who were trying to lead this group of thousands, maybe 10, maybe 15,000 people, and they hear that there's this problem with this one small segment of the population. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, this is verse 2, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, let's understand what they're saying here, okay? The apostles hear about this problem. There's, they have two possible choices, okay? Um, there's, there's two ways they could look at this issue. Number one would be to say that they could just ignore the widows. 
Okay, the Hellenistic widows are such a small number in this larger movement. I mean, we're talking over 15,000 people, and here's this small, tiny little slice of that. And it would be completely possible, and it almost seems like, and we're going to look at this because it's not, but it almost seems like in verse 2 what they're saying is, look, okay, I get it, that's tough. I mean, this is a difficult situation. I understand that, but we just don't have the capacity to handle this. And so what they could have said is, so I'm sorry, we're just, that's just kind of the cost of, of what's going on. And widows, I'm sorry, but look at what God's doing. Because the church is growing. I mean, it's exploding. We're, meet, we're, we're reaching so many people. So many people are believing the gospel. And aren't you excited just to see the group grow and grow and grow? And so I'm sorry, but we just can't handle this problem. There's no way we can deal with it. It's just sort of the cost of, of the gospel moving forward. You're kind of like collateral damage in this amazing and awesome mission. And isn't it awesome? And it really was. I mean, God was doing something amazing and incredible. And so they could have just said, I'm sorry, we just can't, we just can't help. And if they'd said that, we never would have known. They could have left it out because the book of Acts was written by Luke, who was an associate of the apostles. And so they could have just glossed over this and just let it go because, well, there's nothing they could do about it. Or, on the opposite side, they could have looked at the issue and said, all right, this has to be addressed. These people have a legitimate need, and so we've been neglecting them by focusing so much on sharing the gospel and the group growing, and the group's grown too large. We've got to slow this thing down. So stop what we're doing and focus in and make sure everyone's being taken care of. They could have ignored the gospel message and instead turned inward to make sure that everyone was being cared for because it was a legitimate concern. And here early on in the early church, if they don't deal with, if they don't take care of, if they don't care for this group of people, it could in some ways possibly threaten, because look, there's a complaint and there's division going on. And in order to heal that division, they could have stopped what they were doing and made sure that everything was being taken care of. And said, we've grown large enough. Look, 15,000 people, that's pretty good. In a span of a few months, possibly even a few weeks, we've gone from 12 to 15, 12 period, 12, to 15,000. That's astronomical growth. That's pretty good. Let's take care of this 15,000 we have. But that would have gone against the mission they'd been given. Because what Christ had told them to do was to go and to make more disciples. And making disciples has two parts. Making disciples is, is telling other people and leading them to believe the gospel and making them a part of this group. But making disciples also is growing the people who are in the group because discipleship is a lifelong process of growing. And so the apostles looked and they, they can't give up either side. They can't neglect the people who are in the church now. But at the same time, they can't stop preaching and reaching out to the people who are not. 
So the solution they come up with is this. Therefore, brothers, verse 3, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. The solution was, with humility, for the apostles to say, this is too big for us. We can't do this on our own. We can't, we can't handle the leadership of this group the way it's grown. So we need to raise up new leaders. But in doing so, we need to raise up new leaders not to make ourselves more powerful. We need to raise up new leaders specifically for the purpose of serving. See, the whole point and the whole purpose of bringing leadership into the church from the very beginning was to raise up people who would be servants. Not so that people would have titles or positions of authority, but so that they could serve those who otherwise would be neglected. When you've got a small group, it's, it's easier for a small number of people to see to everyone's needs. But as a group grows, as it multiplies, it doesn't work to just kind of let things happen organically. And what we see here is that in the early church, it grew to a point where they had to have leaders, but it was so important to the apostles that those leaders view what they're doing not as just a job or a position of authority, but as a spiritual role. Look at what they said in verse 3. What kind of men were they looking for? What kind of people, what kind of servants did they want to have fill this role? They wanted people of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. They wanted to know that these were people not, and look, what they could have said was, let's find some people with some great organizational skills. We need some real administrative geniuses. We need some logistical wizards who can make sure that we can organize this, who can take a spreadsheet and a map and make sure that everybody gets everything they're supposed to get and they get the right amount and it's proportioned equally. And maybe they can run some, you know, do some income checks and background and all that. And we'll just make sure everybody's getting, ex- and, and, but that's going to take an accountant and it's going to take a manager and it's going to take, and all, but that's not what they looked for. In fact, they don't say anything when they're talking to the congregation. They don't say anything about what these people's skills should be. What they were looking for was somebody or a group of somebodies who understood the spiritual nature of serving. A group of people who could look at the problem and the problem was that there was a group that was being ignored. There was a group that was being overlooked and they needed to find People who understood that that went right to the heart of who they were and what they were as a church. That their mission in spreading the gospel hinged totally and completely on their understanding of weakness and strength. Let me explain what I mean by that. The widows in in this case would have been the weakest or the most powerless people in the church. And at this point in time, the apostles were the most powerful people 
in the church. They were the leaders. They were the ones who had spent time personally with Jesus. They had a certain level of authority. And as we've seen through the Holy Spirit in them, they had a certain level of power that they could have used, they could have leveraged for their benefit. But the gospel, the, the, the message that they were trying to spread was the exact opposite of that impulse. Because what the gospel tells us, the good news, the message the apostles were trying to share was this. That the one, the one with ultimate power, laid aside that power for those who were ultimately powerless. The one, God, who had all the power in the universe, God who is the all-powerful, omnipotent creator of everything, laid that power and that authority aside when he, as Jesus Christ, came to earth, took on the form of of a human being to lay down his power and his authority to take the punishment that we, as human beings, who are ultimately powerless, deserved. And what do I mean by powerless? Because our relationship with God was shattered by our sin. And we as humans live in a state of powerlessness to solve that problem. Because of our relationship being broken, we seek constantly, try as human beings to fix it. Because we know there's a problem and we know there's a God and we know we're not him. And so we're reaching and trying and seeking to make that relationship whole again. And in our own strength, it never works. And if you've ever tried, and I I know you have, because I have, tried on your own to be good enough to bridge that gap between you and God, to make right what you've done wrong or to to fix your sinful state on your own. You've tried and you've tried and you've tried and what you found over and over and over again is it never works. And sometimes it goes okay for a while. You're doing pretty well. You start patting yourself on the back. I'm better than you compare yourself to other people. I'm better than them. I'm doing pretty good. And then you hit a wall. You're confronted with some other sin that you had not even considered before. Or you just totally fall flat on your face. And you're down in this position where you know that you have no power to save yourself. And in that state, God, who has all power, all power in the universe, came to us who had no power on our own. And he didn't have to. And here's the point, and this is the gospel. God had no reason to have to come to us, to have to save us. It was totally by his own will, out of his own love, Nothing we do could ever merit God's favor. Nothing. We are the ultimate powerless people. And yet in his great love, Jesus Christ 
laid down his life, sacrificed his very life to take the punishment we deserve, to do the thing we could not do, the thing we had no power to do. He did it for us. And that's the message of the gospel. That's the message the apostles were trying to share. That's what they were telling people. And that's what people were believing to become a part of this group that's growing and growing and growing. And as it's growing, they get to a point where now they have power, not power relative to God, but power relative to the group they're in. And how are they going to use that power? And they look and they say, we need to appoint more people, bring in new leaders, and we need to make absolutely sure that these are people who understand Why is this important? Not because we're getting power. Not because this is going to make us better. How many of us, how many of us use this, a a sense of a title or a position to try to earn that thing that we can never earn? I know there's a problem. I know I don't measure up. I know that I'm falling short. But if I can convince people by my position, if I can convince people by my title. And so the apostles are like, we have to guard against that. We have to pick out people who understand what the gospel is truly saying. And if you look at the names of the people they chose, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas, these would all be Hellenists. The people they chose were the very people who were different from them. People who would not continue that sort of Hebrew leadership structure. People who could, in a sense, threaten the apostles' position. But they chose them because they believed And the whole congregation believed, looking at these people, that they understood the heart, the core of the gospel. So this organizational structure grew, not not so that they could sort of set in writing or make clear their power. We're the leaders here. Look, there's complaining going on. We need to make it clear we're in charge. We're going to appoint some more leaders so everybody knows who's in charge. That was not the goal. And that was not the point. The point was, there are people who are being hurt. There are people who don't have a voice, who can't stand up for themselves and make sure that they are heard. We need to make sure that that voice gets heard. And the way to do that is by creating an organization that will help us. When we say this is the very basis of the way a church should function, that's kind of underlined later on in Scripture. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the church. If you want to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he uses throughout the whole chapter, he uses this analogy of comparing the church to a body. And, and, and the key, when we look at this passage, a lot of times what we focus on, and, and part of Paul's point, in this passage, is that the, the analogy of a, of a church with a body is that there's a lot of different parts, and they all serve different roles and different functions, 
But each one is essential and each one is vital and they all add up to create something much greater than each individual one. And that if you have a situation where within your body or within a church, excuse me, other people are jealous or everybody wants to serve the same function and other functions aren't being fulfilled, that becomes a mess. And then instead, what we need to do is celebrate the diversity of the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the the passions, all those things that make us different, that when we celebrate the diversity of those things together, we function better as a whole. But there's a little more to it that he says that I want to focus on. And one of the things you have to understand in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, this was a letter. 1 Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth in the first century. And the context of this conversation about the church functioning as a body was that that church in Corinth was going through a problem very, very similar to the one being faced by the early church in the book of Acts. Because they were gathering together for a meal as a whole group And in that, there were people being neglected. There were people who were taking too much and other people who were getting nothing. And so some people were using their position and leveraging it to get more and ignoring other people and they were getting left out. And Paul talks about that in chapter 11 and in chapter 12 when he starts talking about the body and how it functions together. He says this starting in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Paul's saying, it's really easy. Just like the analogy, it's really easy for you to look at your body and say that there are parts of your body that are more important than others. I mean, what do we use the phrase? Vital organs, right? There are some things that you must have and other things that you could take or leave, right? I mean, they're important. They're nice to have, you know? Don't rip off my fingernails, please, but I'll be okay without them. And he's saying, drawing the analogy to a church, Look, if we look around a church and we start thinking that way, if we start thinking like, oh, well, there's this group of the elders, they're so important, or the leaders, the deacons, they're so important, we have to have them, and we somehow elevate them above other people. We say this team is more important than any other team. We have to have it to function. And we start to say that some people, and we start to believe that some people require or deserve more respect that we should look at other people and say that they're better than other people based on their position. Paul's saying that's not true. And look what he says. In fact, he doesn't say that the less honorable parts. He says in verse 23, the parts that we think are less honorable. 
He's saying that we in our culture, in church culture and culture at large, we look at some people and we decide who's important and who's not. And we decide who's important and who's not based on what they can do for us or how similar they are to us. And if you're getting it done, I mean, if you are making things happen, you're important. Or if you're like me, and so when I'm around you, you understand me and we can have a conversation and we get each other, then you're important. But if you're not like me and you don't help me, then I start to think you're not as important. And what Paul says here is that in a church, there is no such thing as an unimportant person. That in fact, those people who seem to be less honorable, we should be going out of our way to give them greater honor. Because again, in the gospel, what God did was look down at us who were less honorable and gave up his life. When we look at a, at a church, what we should see, by the grace of God, what we would see, what Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 12, what we're starting to see happening in Acts chapter 6, is a group of people inspired and on fire for the gospel and for the mission of telling others about Jesus Christ, but also intimately concerned about the needs of of their weakest members, who care so much about their most vulnerable that they would give away, because that's what the apostles did. They gave away their power to make sure that those with less power were being served. Now, very, very sadly, that's not what we always see in a church. It's not what we see all the time throughout society, but specifically, um, this is a very sensitive subject, and, and I understand in, in saying that this, that this is difficult. Um, but if we just think about, and, and with, with the, the film Spotlight winning an Academy Award last, last week as, um, as a film that brings to light or reminds us of something really, if you haven't seen the film, it's a film about a group of journalists who uncovered what was going on within a specific segment of the Catholic Church where there was widespread sexual abuse of a very vulnerable and weak and voiceless segment of our community or of our world, which is young children who, who don't have a voice to speak up for themselves. And, and what was happening, the abuse was, is horrific and, and horrible enough on its own. But what the journalists uncovered and what makes it exponentially worse is that those who were in power within a church, those who were within power used and leveraged their power to hide what was happening 
to, to the detriment of those who were being victimized to protect those who had a position. <clears throat> and, and it would be false. It would be untrue for us to say, well, that only happened in that one place or within that one, it, it, that's just the Catholic church or anything like that would be untrue because we've seen examples of it <clears throat> over and over and over again in churches very, very similar to our own. We've seen examples where leadership in a church in order to protect, protect their own positions, in order to protect their own titles or their own power, they silence the voice of the most vulnerable amongst them. This is not, this is not why there is organization or structure within a church. This is not the purpose of a church. This is not what a church should be. By the grace of God, it's not what the church will be, but at times it's what the church has become. And it happens when we forget the gospel truth that we have no claim to power in and of ourselves. That everything we have is a gift from a loving and gracious God and that nothing makes me any better or any worse than any other individual. So that when I look around a room at people who are different from me, people who are similar to me, and I might technically or I might instinctively be drawn more towards the people who are more like me. Or I look around the room and I see some people who could benefit me, some people who could help me in some way, and I might be more instinctively drawn to those people because I think I can get something from them. What the gospel tells me is that it's those who are weaker who deserve the greater amount of my attention. And look at what the result was in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. That when the apostles raised up leaders who were still focused on the gospel, but who could help, to organize and to structure what was going on, that the word of God continued to increase, that they just kept growing. And what happened when they kept growing? It's not here, but we can all assume and we understand what would happen. More leaders would be raised up and the structure would have to become more structured, but it would continue to grow. Why? Because people looked at what was going on and they saw a group of people who were radically different than the world around them. We don't have to go back very far. If we just go back a few chapters, we see the Sanhedrin, which were the religious leaders of the day. And when their power was threatened by the apostles preaching the gospel, their reaction was totally different because their power was totally resting their hope, their, their ideals, everything they were was resting in their position and their authority. And anything that threatened that power, that authority, they had to destroy. And so they attempted to beat, to threaten, to scare the apostles, to shut them up so that they could hold on to that power. <laughs> and the people watching turned against them and towards the apostles. 
And here the church looks at, here's a group of voiceless people who need our help and they restructure everything they're doing in order to help this group of people. And what happens? The church grows because people see there's something going on. There's something different. There's something that's different than the way I think, the way the world thinks. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem And don't miss this, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The people who had a position, who had authority in the old structure, see a new structure that's been created not to promote power, not to keep them in power, but rather to serve others. And they are changed. Now, as we look at this, obviously, this has big implications for us as a church. Certainly, it has implications for for what it means to be in leadership, what it means to serve in the church. But as we close, I want to also make sure that we don't miss this, okay? Just in closing, this has implications in our own lives as well. Because the way we interact in our relationships needs to be informed by this same gospel understanding of who people are. The Bible tells us that that all of us were made in the image of God, and yet all of us fell. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, so many of us in our own relationships still seek to use and gain power in a way that gives us what we think is best for us. In other words, we look at relationships as a zero-sum game. I gain when you lose, and when you gain, I lose. And so we, through whatever means we can, use whatever kind of power we have in order to bring ourselves up and to press others down. And so we will use emotional manipulation. We will will use physical threats and intimidation. At times, we'll even attempt to use scriptures to try to give ourselves power and to put ourselves over those who we see as less important than us. And it should not be this way. What the gospel tells us is that we are all equal. What the gospel frees us to, it frees us to know that my true joy does not come from exercising authority. That my greatest joy does not come from having things my own way. And just like the apostles looked at the situation in Acts chapter 6 and said, our joy in spreading the gospel does not come from exercising authority over others. We have to look at the relationships that we have on an everyday basis and say, our joy is not going to come from winning. Our joy comes when we do what the apostles did and we give away. We sacrifice. We lay down our rights or our authority for the good of others. So as we go into a time of reflection... There there are multiple points of application that we could take from this. 
I just want to ask you to focus in on three questions. Number one, where are you personally seeking to establish and use power to your own advantage? In what ways are you trying to leverage whatever you have as an advantage over others to give yourself your own comfort, your own joy, your own position? It's really easy. It's really easy to look at that and say, "Well, I don't have a title. I don't have a position. I don't have power." But all of us, at some points, have somebody that we feel powerful over. How are we looking at that relationship, and how are we using that power? Are we using it for our benefit, or are we using it to serve? Number two, how are you filling your role? as a member of the body of Christ. If Paul says we are all one body together, if what we're seeing in Acts is that the whole structure of a church, the whole purpose of a church is to serve, how are you serving? How are you serving in, in this body? And number three, have you admitted your own powerlessness over sin? Have you come to a place where you have said, I have tried, on my own I have tried to live the right life. I've tried to make my own way. I've tried to pull myself closer to God through my own righteousness. Have you come to a place where you said that doesn't work and I am powerless on my own? Have you come to that place and laid that down to Christ and said it's only through his power that you can be forgiven? It's only through his power that your relationship with God can be restored. It's only through his power that you can have hope of ever finding peace in your life. The great thing, the good news, the gospel, is that he did all the work that needs to be done for us. Because he has all the power, he did all that could be done. And all, all we have to do is believe. Believe in that sacrifice. Let go of your own grip. Let go of your own attempts to gain power. Let go of your own attempts to, and your own power to heal yourself. And trust in what Christ did for you. We're going to pray and go into a time of reflection and then we'll take communion together. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. And we understand again, we're reminded again this morning that your love for us is completely and totally unmerited. That there's nothing we could do to earn your approval, your love, your mercy. You gave it all freely to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God, I pray that you'll give us all eyes to view others through those same lenses, through that same idea, through that same sense of need and that same sense of love. That we would be a people, a body together, so filled with your love and that love so much flowing out of us towards others that it would become apparent to a world that functions under a totally different structure that it's only by your grace that we are different.
We pray that you'll work this in our hearts in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.